2: Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedeckes, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is very, very special. I have with me Dr. Luciano Floridi. We're going to be talking about uh, information, which is really fun, the philosophy of information. He is a pioneer. I think he's invented the philosophy of information in a sense. In a sense, it's always been here the whole time. That's one of his arguments as well. It's really cool. Uh, you guys can check out his his short little book, Information, a Very Short Introduction. He's got a lot of other books, but uh, this is a great intro to it. I've been blessed by it as well. Today we're going to be talking about information, maybe some AI, but just what what is information? That's going to be a really fun one. And before we jump in, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon. If you guys like the show, support it on Patreon or YouTube members. This one, this episode is also support, uh, brought to you by Saddleback Leather. You guys know i love saddleback leather stuff look uh in the description for the link to saddleback i have it all over my office it's amazing stuff i love it check them out and if you use my link then uh you'll support the podcast so please do that no not too much commodification today because i want to jump in with dr floridi so let's just pull him right in dr floridi thanks thanks so much for coming on the podcast thank you thank you for the invitation um, before we get in, so I already, I pronounce the podcast incorrectly and I do that intentionally because I'm an American swine and I, I think it'd be a little pretentious if I just jumped in from my Chicago accent to pense. but also my, my last name is Italian. My grandfather or uh, my grandfather was Sicilian, but my dad was adopted by him. He's Italian. You're, you're Italian. Can you pronounce my last name for me? Can you, can you, can you help us with this?
1: So Parker, I, I need to find your surname first of all. But yeah, uh, it's uh,
2: right down in right down in the picture. It just yes. right that
1: ladies. it is. Uh, set the case. There it, we go. It means seven houses. Yeah, that's right.
2: Set the uh, can, can you do it one more time for me?
1: <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh that's why the invitation. I can see that.
2: <laughs> okay, set the case. Oh, it's beautiful. That's so good. Thank you. Um well Dr. Floridi, you you were you spent like half of your academic life as, as a logic guy, mathematical logic. And I, I just realized, um, I was listening to one of your interviews and you said you, st- or maybe I was looking up your re- your info about you and you studied with Susan hack. Is that right? I did. Yes. So, so her well, book yeah. philosophy of Logic is like epic. So wonderful. It's life changing for important. me a while back when I was in seminary, beautiful, amazing. You, you got in through logic and somehow you became the, the information guy. Can you, can you help us with that? How, how'd that happen?
1: Yeah, so, um, well, that book uh, was, um, at the time, uh, was translated into Italian. Uh, at the time, I didn't have any English. That was embarrassing. A, a so, I was a, a first year student, undergraduate, and uh, my English was like, you know, I could hardly hold their coffee. Uh, so, I read that um, accidentally. It was not part of any course, but, you know, the, the usual curious, uh, investigative uh, undergraduate wants to know more about this and that just came out, um, and uh, it, it just made a revolution in my way of thinking. Um, uh, there were two books. One actually was a set book for a course on introduction to ethics, which was uh, Ethics by E.G. Moore. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I discovered this world of analytic philosophy where you could actually talk about problems, mm-hmm. not about people. Well, that is not entirely true because then analytic philosophy became mostly about Russell, Wittgenstein, and Frege. Uh, but it's the destiny of any, you know, uh, philosophical trend. Uh, you start with the philosophical problems and then you end with philosophers' problems. But at the time we, shall we say, uh, the community of, uh, early stage career, little guy, me, uh, and other big, big names, we were still dealing with philosophical problems and uh, both from the ethics side, you know, uh, E.G. Moore, and, uh, from the logic and philosophical logic, uh, Susan, uh, it it was fascinating how you could have remarkable, clear and precise tools mm-hmm. to tackle issues that you thought were interesting important. important. Um, so that was the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a letter with a stamp uh, to Susan, uh, who was at Warwick and I started a little conversation with her. Then I got a scholarship from Rome University to go and work with her and Michael Dummett oh, yeah. uh, at work in, in, uh, in Oxford. And what was a, a six months uh, write your uh, undergraduate thesis uh, abroad kind of uh, <laughs> project? <laughs> what finds me now at Yale, so no, I never left, basically. Wow. Um, but it was uh, fascinating. But you asked actually, sorry, um, the question, how did I move from there to... Yeah. Okay. Well, the thing... It- we need to introduce a third character, uh, who is not just, uh, E.G. Moore and, uh, Susan Hack, but, uh, Popper, uh, Karl Popper. Yeah. I got lucky, uh, again, uh, Popper was still alive. I uh, was retired. Uh, I was writing some, philosophical stuff on his work. And, and I, again, as a graduate student would, I wrote the usual letter with a stamp and said, <laughs> uh, <Karl."> unbelievable. <laughs> uh he actually replied so we had this very quick conversation uh, i cherished the, the, the that letter i must have known that particular letter in which he disagreed completely with me but that's another <laughs> story of um, this but you know you're, not, you're a graduate student and there is no can pop and disagreeing with you like you think really, you are really not know, part of the club of the yeah. and so why well, i'm introducing him because um uh, there's a particular uh, not terribly well known a remarkably important uh, uh, article by Popper, which is if I remember correct a long time epistemology without the knowing subject mm. and uh, in this article it speaks about you know, how you can do you not know, knowledge epistemology you know, from what I would consider Popper would have been horrified, but an, an analytic sort of perspective in terms of um, looking at just the knowledge knowledge itself, um, I mean, the, the dynamics of knowledge, the distribution of knowledge, what would, in another know, the concept would be called um, uh, the a, a pro, sort of epistemic logic approach to it. So you start seeing the pieces and then all of a sudden I realized, actually, this thing is not called knowledge because it's not owned by it, it's called information,
0: mm-hmm. if you start
1: talking about something out there that I may or may not have, I may or may not send, I may or may not sort of uh, shape, the stuff there of which knowledge is made. Uh, I thought, well, this is really easy information, and I click with uh, the last element in this conversation, which is a bit personal. Am I allowed? Yeah, please, please. please. Originally, a long, long, long time ago, uh, we talked about Luciano in his, uh, you know, teenager, because we studied uh, philosophy in in high school. My primary interest was philosophy of religion, Kierkegaard Mm. in particular. Uh, You wouldn't get exactly. So... Um, but what I was interested in, in the first year of my undergraduate studies, the reason why I wanted to study more about logic and philosophy, logic and communication theory, and so on, I was interested in the um, in how things that today I'm no longer sort of able to say without smiling, um, how God can send a message to humanity. Yeah, no, the angel, not the no, angelos, not the the messenger, etc. And, uh, and so I was interested in understanding, from a canon perspective, believe mm-hmm. it or not, uh, God's communication with humanity. Not thinking God is a source, humanity is the receiver, and there is a channel. How this channel could work, if it works at all, in order to sort of present a message, um, the the uh, you know the, the good message, you know, the, the New Testament. The, uh, it, it has the uh, euangelos you now has the same root
0: as the yeah, ancient. the Ewangelion. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So all that, uh, that was classic studies to do, do for you. Uh, so put all these pieces together, and then uh, now there's uh, an interesting source and receiver that uh, from a philosophy of religion, miracles, etc. Then there's pop purpose not without uh, no subject. Then there's uh, E.G. Moore and analytic philosophy, there's the mm-hmm. philosophy logic. And so one day, and that's that's the end of the story, uh, I was uh, at Wolfson College uh, in Oxford. Uh, I was a postdoc at that point, uh, and I was invited to give a talk in London, open topic, and I really wanted to do something about this stuff that we wouldn't be known afterwards as philosophy of information. Yeah. And I was with someone. Uh, there's someone, I don't remember her name at all. That's Shame on me. That's the philosopher, in, uh, typical, like totally folk. I must have bored that poor girl to death. Said, <laughs> sitting on the on this uh, little bench, looking at the river, Wilson College, and I said, you know what, I could call this, I could give a talk called, what is the philosophy of information? Mm. There is no section, but I I think think we should have it. And the next thing I know, they say, oh yeah, that's interesting. Why don't you come and give me this talk? What is it? Like, well, well, we can
2: discover together. That's the beginning. That's fantastic. That's so cool. My my audience will love that story too, especially about Kierkegaard or Kierkegaard. We have a lot of uh, Kierkegaardians Mm. in the audience, so that'll be fun. It's it's really fascinating that you wanted to use uh, Shannon information to talk about divine revelation. I think that's that's really fascinating. Yeah, and I know you've, was, you've come a long way. Yeah, yeah, you've come a long way since then. But um, I'm yeah, that's super fascinating. Later,
1: I'll go back to that question, though. That yeah. is my long, long, long journey. Oh, At wow. some point, I will go back all the way to the question about God. That yeah. is the question.
2: Yeah, um, Dr. Fleury, uh, uh maybe this is too personal, but did have, have you like? Um, when you were talking or when you were thinking about that project, were you, were you a, a believer in God yourself and, and are, are you not any yeah. longer?
1: Uh, no longer. Uh, so when I, uh, I lost my faith roughly, uh, at that stage during the first, second year, uh, it is a four year course. And during the first, second year, I, I realized that I had lost it. Okay. Yeah. It's not that the one day you wake up and say, oh, I don't have faith anymore. Mm. But it, it's like the foundations of a building. Sure. It gets eroded and eroded and eroded. And one day, boom, the whole thing collapses. But that was not the day when it really was undermined. It was right. like a long, long,
2: long process. process.
1: Yeah. I will say uh, between, you know, uh, being a late teenager, um, uh, by, by the time I was 17, 18, I, know, I, I had already almost lost entirely, uh, hmm. my faith. Having said that I didn't acquire another faith. Uh, I never became an atheist. Okay. Uh, I didn't want to exchange one belief for another belief. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, people know, I mean, uh, you don't go around. Uh, there's a famous phrase you know, in the philosophy of science, that, uh absence of evidence is not evidence of sound uh, absence. Right. Uh, and you know, if you're rigorous enough uh, and serious enough, you should acknowledge that and and you know, we, we, we may never know. So I'm, i I, describe myself today as a, um, spiritual, uh,
2: agnostic. Mm, okay. Yeah,
1: that, that's, there's, there's as close as it gets. Yeah.
2: That's fascinating. Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that personal detail. Um, that's, that's really fascinating. I, I hate to do this to you because everyone does, but you kind of, since you invented the philosophy of information, it comes with the territory. Can you help us out? Like what? What is information? There's a bunch of different ways to categorize it. Is there one central core that, that picks out, you know, what information is across different uh, definitions?
1: Well, first of all, let, let's say uh, it's a mess. <laughs> That's the number one. Okay. Everybody should start from there because um, I've seen people talking about information as if um, using it uh, most of the time, especially in philosophy. Uh, as if it were like the most obvious tool and therefore everybody understands me and all that. So, and then that is where the confusion starts, because of course, there are many ways in which we understand what the information uh, is um, they have in common um uh, normally uh, something um and I'll tell you more in, in a moment. but let me start from uh since you mentioned the little book, uh, I don't feel guilty in telling people that it's all it's all in that little book yeah uh, and very shocking um so imagine you're talking about uh information. In the world, mm-hmm. and it could be, um, say, the um, traces um, left by an animal in the forest. Uh, it could be the usual rings of a tree, cuts telling you the age of that tree. So that is, um, shall we say, the ontological conception of information. Yeah, and that, when we speak about that, we might be even talking about you no, know, Since there's a, there's been a revival uh, of LPs, no, you know, uh, the trace that is read uh, by the pin to reproduce music. I mean, that is also a physical trace. And you can point to it like that is information. Say so in one sense, well, it's a pattern. Hmm. So a lot of people often say, well, look, what, you, what we have here is information because there's a, a pattern that, and now we move to the, a different concept but they're all related, okay? Yeah. Uh, that pattern may have meaning. It's not just a random pattern. It's not like, um, say, um, clouds in the sky. Sure, that pattern. For example, the the pattern oh, yeah, on an LP, the engraved uh, pattern read by the the pin or um, my uh, fingertip, fingerprint. Sorry, uh, left on on a glass, etc. Yeah.
0: They have meaning, They might have
1: consequences, etc. When we talk about uh, meaningful patterns, uh, then we start talking about meaningful data. And that is already entering into the realm of uh, semantic information. So you're no longer just talking about, oh, oh, there's a particular structure or pattern out there, um, but you're talking about information about something. So it's no longer information as, AS, as something, but information about something. That is the usual meaning that we tend to endorse if we're talking information. But, oh, I, I want to have some information or information desk, or I didn't get any information, uh, so yeah. our information these days is everything. No, um, you can't take decisions without information. So mm. That's what we mean. No? So uh, content about something else. So there's a reference, and there's content. Content, doesn't help if you don't describe that, becomes data plus meaning plus syntax. Yeah. So the data have a particular structure and they have a particular meaning. If you move all the way to, uh, adding also, uh, a, a true value, it's false or, or, or not, then you have one kind of semantic information, which is uh, the typical factual semantic information that you find in Wikipedia. Train yeah. table sort of, uh, information. And so on. there's a third kind, which doesn't have a true value, which is, no, which has a meaning, um, as a structure, which has semantic and syntax but doesn't have any truth value. And is uh, all the third kind information that we uh, describe as information for something. Imagine music, files. Uh, uh, I send you a file, I send you some information. In one sense? A certain amount of data, which have particular uh, say, meaning, a particular structure, might have been zipped or not, etc. But then you open it and does it play music? Well, that is information for something in order to play music, right? Is it a recipe for a cake? Yeah. Okay. That is information for something. It's an algorithm. It, you, you get the gist. But it's is not it, necessarily
2: vertical or not. You, you yeah. wouldn't say, is this, is this a true is recipe? Is it true or false? Yeah. Right, right.
1: So, uh, people, well, we, we use true meaning genuine at that, but not philosophers, Yeah, it right. be <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Oh, is it that, is it really the, your, your, gra- your true grandma's recipe is that right, right. genuine Yes. If we are careful with that. So, Information as something in the world, information about something, uh, semantic, factual, and information for something, which is more the algorithmic kind. Once you have these three, there's a, is, that's a big step forward in terms of understanding what we're talking.
2: Yeah. I I love that. Yeah. And, and some other, so information in the book, it's information as reality, information for information about reality, um, exactly. or for, for the world. I, I love this distinction. It's been really helpful, um, for me in thinking about, um, Getting clear, because a lot of people will conflate these, uh, especially on the more popular level and then say like, well, everything just is information, but they mean information about reality. It's that, that type of information. Everything is that. Um, I wonder if all information, I don't know another word to say for, except for like intentionality. The, the information about reality has a particular intentionality. It's this information is about whatever thing is out there in the world. Maybe it's like representational. When I think of information as reality, and I think about either fingerprints or rings on a tree, is there an intentionality to that type of information? Like uh, the rings in the in the tree, is that about the age of the tree or anything? No, not really.
1: There's a there's a correlation that we can exploit. Okay. So we can correlate uh, some uh, something in the world. Say A has a particular feature F. And, uh, uh, which is correlated to something else B having another feature G, Mm -hmm. you say. And so if you, um, uh, that particular, the, the, the tree cut has not that feature, those rings, which is correlated to the same tree having a particular age, but that correlation, um, is what we exploit in terms of then acquiring the information about the tree. It would be a little bit funny let me put it this way, uh, to say, "Oh, oh, the tree, Meant to send us a message. I yeah. uh, you know, imagine that uh, you have some uh, unknown uh, ancient language that you discover on an island, yeah. an island tomorrow, and a dead civilization. But we find signs that have clearly a structure. That is the first hallmark of information. Yeah, this thing repeats. It has a regularity. Things come with a syntax. You see the syntax. You actually see the you know, the, the patterns. You, st- you start thinking, these patterns are not natural. They have been put there by someone. You infer that there must be a meaning, a semantics. They are sending us a message or they are sending a message. They're broadcasting a message. You need to crack that particular sort of uh, code. Right. Oh, uh, we need to be careful. Sometimes we'll be too metaphorical um, and mm-hmm. say, oh, the the this, the rings in the tree is a, is a code for uh, yeah. metaphors. Let's be careful. Uh, the tree doesn't say anything, doesn't want to tell us anything. Um this is also useful when it when it comes to AI. Uh you no know, matter too. what you get, it, it is still no patterns. AI didn't mean to say anything, didn't uh didn't have a plan, did have an intention. Uh it's just that no, with all those correlations, um, on this side, you can tell the age of the tree. Uh but don't confuse no the the tree and its intentionality, with what we do with that pattern.
2: That's, that's really helpful. So, um, in, in diving down on that point a little bit deeper. So, um, I posted about having a conversation with you and I just mentioned, um, environmental information kind of to gin up, uh, interest in the, in the conversation and, and a philosopher of science, uh, was, was, uh, I would say she was triggered. She, she was like, well, you dendrochronologists, uh, have to do so much work to de- derive Information out of the tree rings, and so tree rings are not identical to information. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, the the whole. I, I go in for John Searle's uh, observer relativity argument, so I, I like that. I think there needs to be an observer to be to be able to interpret the information. Like you said, there's no the tree doesn't have its own intentionality, but it seems like the whole idea of dendrochronology of finding the age of a tree from tree rings presupposes that there is information in there to be correlated, at least, right?
1: Uh, you, you could put it the other way around. Uh, it goes around until you find something that is such that the correlation helps us to do it. I mean, it might have done, no, science fiction. it might have turned out no, that, those, not those rings don't tell anything about yeah. the age. I mean, there is something, of course, about those, all the identity of the individual. I mean, um, not with the uh, fingerprints. Um, the tree had that structure because by living in a particular environment, et cetera, accumulates Right. Those particular features that are you know, slowly sedimenting into its so sort of, uh, particular rings, so there is a, a direct correlation between age and you know, time, if you like, you know, of growth rings, you not know, uh, growing, and us being able to, as we were, reverse engineer the rings you not know, back to the age. Right. So it's not magic. There's nothing uh, strange. But it, we could imagine, for example, it's a little bit like reading in archaeology, reading uh, a particular site and the strata of the uh, the, uh, the archaeological strata and say, no, this belongs to, say, this, this particular age of humanity. And then, I don't know, it's, it's like many thousand years old, um, uh, and no, this was like 10,000 10, years, then it's 6,000 years. Of a, why well, why oh well because those are the uh, the artifacts those are, are the particular say geological um events that enable us to date so there's something there that helps us to acquire the information about the yeah, it is tricky oh, and that's why you know we find so much confusion because people because we use uh, um information as reality uh, almost as if the information were there and just needed to be discovered yeah as if we were digging out the information from there, we confuse this with um imagine a different example uh, a radio sending a signal from uh imagine we receive a signal a radio signal from another galaxy has mm. been traveling i don't know four million of years, and uh, that civilization is there. i mean that could that's no science fiction i mean that could happen turn totally. way more than no other things uh we cannot travel faster than light, but we could receive one day that would be. Astonishing, I mean, would it would be a change in human history, but imagine that we get that radio signal, um, that reconstruction is completely different. That is not reading, uh, sort of, uh ring trees or finding my finger prints on, uh, on a glass. And someone, somewhere broadcasted that, uh, and so there's a, then we're back to, to the real thing, you not know, to the source, the message and the receiver. That is much more Shannon. Mm. But this, the tree is not sending anything. Uh, yeah. We are able to interpret that particular pattern in such a way that we can sort of leverage the pattern to reconstruct backwards the age of the tree. Or, for example, the presence of, say, someone on, on a crime scene because the, to some extent, uh, the fingerprints were there. And then, of course, Sherlock Holmes shows that, no, he wasn't there with someone yeah. else, someone to put the glass there, the guy, etc., etc.
2: Well, Dr. Flirty, um, I wonder if the situation changes uh, if uh, if I leave my fingerprint on a glass with the intention of leaving my unique fingerprint. So maybe maybe I'm kidnapped, but I, I, I press it on there so that someone can find this and say, "Oh, Parker's been here." Does that change the um, information from like environmental to uh, I don't know, like like analog or to? Does it have intentionality now because I've intended to communicate through my unique? Fingerprint?
1: Yes. So um, what we have changed, uh, and you, I think you find that also in the, in the book, uh, we have changed, if you like, the interface okay. through which we're looking at that piece of information. Uh, in computer science, it's called level of abstraction, but um, we don't have to be sort of too fancy. I mean, we can call it interface. So if you're looking, for example, at a, uh, with the interface of the police looking for someone who has, might have been kidnapped, uh, or say uh, I am lost in a forest and I start leaving you know, uh pieces of my clothes here, 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 here,
0: yeah.
1: Imagine that scenario versus uh, I'm in a forest and I'm losing bits of my stuff. No, my, my, let me, let me do it. like more, more, um, uh, intelligent. My backpack, uh, I have a backpack. There's a hole I'm losing pieces in a forest. I'm in a forest, I'm lost. I'm trying to be found. So I'm intentionally leaving pieces in the forest from an interface that doesn't have why am I asking this question for, doesn't have a purpose. The two phenomena are identical. Essentially, all I know is that someone is in the park and is leaving, and there's the remnants, of bits of the uh, backpack uh, left. Is he meant to be found? Is he lost? Does just have a hole in the backpack and losing stuff as he goes? That is intentional. That is what we do in terms of interpretation, um, which is good. Uh, but we need to be able to distinguish this from what do we have in front of us now? Sometimes, and I hope I'm, I'm not confusing things uh, too much. Now, in yeah. philosophy science, we speak of how data underdetermine the theory. Yeah. In other words, you can have many, many data points, and you can reconstruct sometimes those data points in more than one way. Often, yeah. well, that's the same story about the me losing bits of stuff in in uh, uh, in the park. Uh, Am I trying to be found or, or, or just have a hole in my backpack? Uh, yes. So of course, if the police thinks that I'm lost, et cetera, everybody will interpret that as an attempt to be found, but it might be just an accident. I just got lucky. And mm. without me knowing, uh, I left a trace and people find me fantastic.
2: That that's helpful. So, um, so I understand, I think, I, I think I understand information if you if you want to analyze it in terms of uh, data and meaning because then we can go in on data and we can say well data are made of uh, uh bits which is just like one unit and i understand that in the binary uh conversation i'm not sure i understand it in a physical um information as reality understanding what what would a what would a bit be in the physical world Yeah, oh, no, well well first of all the the bit normally that's again an uh, unfortunate um
1: difficult word to, to use, um, can either be a uh, part of the code we use in order to you know, code some information. Oh, sure. So imagine like the telegraph, no. hmm. dot line, dot line, dot line. So is the world, uh, is, is know, the Hamlet made of dot? Nope. No, of course not, but we can transform the whole Hamlet into and transmit <laughs> this on the other side of the Atlantic, you no, good old yeah. days. So the bit is that is a code or very rarely is something you find in the world i mean the world doesn't tend to be binary the uh, the way the way we experience it uh, we normally experience it as a continuum analog as in you know, there's always something in between something else um, uh, there was um uh, this famous uh phrase uh, nature doesn't make jumps uh, uh, well, the fact that it doesn't make jumps means, you know, if you translate it into 21st century, nature is not binary. Um, mm. It doesn't move from zero to one or from yes/no, high no uh, Heidel, So, uh, current uh, uh, electricity in the circuit, uh, hole or no hole on a CD, etc. So, if we are not talking about the code, but we're talking about the sort of information, if you like, in reality, out there as a reality, that normally is analog. Uh, imagine a map. Okay, so you have a map, that map is, is, is continuous, uh, its own lines and say the, the, the underground map so that you can travel from one point to the next. Um, the extraordinary revolution that we have undergone, uh, roughly, uh, you know, if we want to have a hero, we can pick up Alan Turing, but no, it comes earlier, Babbage, uh, but even Leibniz, Hobbes, yeah. is that we found a way of encoding every kind of information in the world, waves included, so continuum, into discrete uh, elements, that's your code, and we have machines that can handle the code automatically. In fact, today, we have machines that not only can handle the code automatically, but they can do so by learning from day out. And that's not AI. Their evolution has been extraordinary because at that point uh, in a few steps, which are historically amazing, you have from the analog continuous world to the digital binary world, to a machine that can handle that uh, efficiently more and more and more, to the extent that that machine through statistics can also find the fundamental patterns in the original analog, imagine English, all the English spoken, mm-hmm. and start digging out from the deepest no, uh, so, uh, well of structures in that language, patterns that can be reused for us to do useful work. Mm-hmm. For example, now, I don't know, translate this into that. Well, that is not a, a journey that has been almost uh, a miracle. Now, if you pass me the so dangerous <laughs> analogy. Yeah, yeah, okay. um, to me, that is really, really extraordinary uh, journey uh, from, so I say, from the first computer to uh, Chat GPT. Yeah. Thinking about, uh, oh, we're creating some kind of form of intelligence. here yeah, is, is almost like not getting how big the transformation is. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's almost like saying, like, uh, you are belittling the extraordinary human ingenuity that went into all these steps. And instead you think that no, by clicking something that yeah. you're not quite sure these black boxes, all of a sudden, boom, intelligence arises.
2: It's not the way it works. That's amazing. I'll, I've never thought of it that way. I, I was listening to you earlier and you talked about you, now, now everything clicks for me where you're saying, um, the thing about AI this is from one of your lectures is that we no longer have to be, we no longer have to use intelligence to park a car for, uh, you know, uh, self-driving cars or to play chess. You, and that is no longer, and that is a really big deal. It's it's you've it's outmoded intelligence, and that's yeah. huge. That shows how intelligent we are that we are yeah. able to do that. But yeah. when you say no, that thing has to be intelligent because it's doing what we do. Now you've actually belittled the achievement of the programmers and such. Exactly. So.
1: Uh, if you think in terms of um extraordinary, remarkable, powerful, benign or not intelligence, you belong to uh, to the past. You're still. A modern, in a bad sense of modern, uh, there's a good <laughs> sense, but in a bad sense of modern, sure. uh, thinker, uh, you still you still start with Frankenstein, okay? Mm-hmm. The reproduction of ourselves, one way or another, they may or may not take over, may may not, but the the Frankenstein, uh, the Golem myth, um, that is not quite getting the way more, me interesting revolution, which is extraordinary, and mm-hmm. no you. One way of putting it, as you said, is to, for the first time in human history, we have been able to decouple successful agency and intelligence. Yeah, That's never happened before. I mean, we had never managed to do something successfully. In view of a goal, improving at zero intelligence. So that's what I normally I tell students here is that, look, imagine parking a car at zero intelligence. <laughs> Don't yeah. do that with, no, with your parents' cat. They will not be pleased. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, imagine cooking at zero intelligence, uh, or doing the dishes at zero intelligence, playing yeah. chess at zero intelligence. But warehousing at zero intelligence, okay? Uh, just, or uh, collecting strawberries. I'm, I'm actually referring to actual industrial applications. Building a car at zero intelligence. Impossible. You yeah. mess, the disaster. The cost will be all over the place. Today, we have, as we speak, not like, oh, one day, that's a, no, no. for years now, we have had machines that can do that successfully and improving because, of course, they learn from their output uh, to get uh, their output as an input in, so that their performance gets better and better up to a point where we are not completely satisfied. I mean, the parking is perfect. The, no, the strawberries are collected in the most efficient and effective way, etc. Yeah, that divorce between agency and intelligence that is historical, and allow me for you know, this extra little uh, look into the future. That is where the problems are, the challenges, the opportunities, but also the problems. Now, when we talk about the ethics of AI, uh, uh, the real point here is in that sort of gap between agency and intelligence that we are generating and increasing in that gap you find all the difficulties, the privacy, the, the bias, the copyright and intellectual property, um, the control uh, over uh, resources, uh, the exploitation, um, keep going. It, not the fake, uh, deep fake, it's all there in the fact that we can actually, as for, for the past few years, we've been able to do things remarkably successfully, more and more at zero intelligence that is the thing that we should be understanding much better and design much better
2: yeah that's so fascinating i've i've been thinking of, i'm i'm in a class right now on the the philosophy of artificial intelligence and, and i've been thinking about trying to come up with some kind of distinction because i know that the the ai folks over on the computer science side of things they don't like the word artificial intelligence because they think it's genuine intelligence and i think it's perfect it's a perfect word it is artificial it's It's a representation of the intentions of the programmer. But I wonder, I wonder if you would put um, like booby traps in the same uh, category as like a self-driving car. Like, you know, think back to maybe a Bronze Age booby trap. Someone steps on this, uh, something in a dart shoots into their chest. Uh, Is that, is that still uh, agency without intelligence in the same way, just a more rudimentary form or no? No. So, uh, this is
1: also another topic where we need a few distinctions, but, um, the kind of uh, artificial intelligence that we have, uh, and, uh, and we have had it for a little while, but this one is you no know, the sort of, uh, statistical kind, as opposed to the, you no know, deductive kind that we had in the past, uh-huh. it's way more powerful, um, is the ability to learn. That is the kind of agency uh, we're talking about. That's right. Uh, the booby trap doesn't learn. Yeah. It's the same way in which the, an earthquake is a form of agency, but not the kind that we're talking about, because an earthquake doesn't learn. It's not that today you say, oh, no, I'm really an evil force. I want to do more damage. Next time I do a better (laughs) job. Like, uh, I I wait for everybody to sleep, and then I go, of course not. But if you think of, um, imagine uh, forms of agency. And this is, uh, for anyone who's listening, this is completely unorthodox. Uh, Don't try this at home. Um, And no, I've been criticized. In fact, one of the reviewers of the ethics of AI, uh, the, the last book there before UP, when I make this distinction, said that this was complete bonkers. So <laughs> luckily, luckily I had enough replies to say that, uh, they hadn't quite understood what I was talking about, but here we go. So an orthodox. Imagine agency coming in degrees. Okay. Something very, very poor. No, no, like low degree, high degree. The highest degree, uh, is probably the one that is omnipotent. No. Imagine God that can do anything, learn anything, know anything. but it could go for a moment, uh, for not any, on this planet, what we have is, um, interaction with the world. If you make a difference in the world, then you are already an agent. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we talk about atmospheric agents for that reason, Yeah, rain, earthquake, a river, a river that not goes from the mountain all the way to the, to the sea is an agent, uh, for good or bad, because because it has one condition, the minimal condition makes a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Change so interaction. Then you have good old days. Uh, something in between uh, there are uh, your average animal. They uh, a dog. Uh, a dog can learn. It can also have intentions. You now it, uh, it means to survive. For example, uh, it will stay away from. Uh, danger, um, he will not like, uh, another bigger dog, uh, coming as So there's, there's both learning and let's call it intentionality. Okay. And of course the highest degree of that is the human being where there is all this and the ability to overcome all this, not only all this, but also say the conscious ability to control all this and say, you know what? I want to commit suicide. The dog will not, uh, Oh, you know what, I don't have to be afraid of something. Um, or, you know, I can keep my hand, uh, my finger for 30 seconds on the flame of a candle. I don't know how many stupid jokes have we done when we were kids? Like, because I want to uh, Yeah. dog. So that kind of conscious control, et cetera, That comes as an extra form of agency. Mm-hmm. Now, these were the three, no. The weaver, the dog, and me. And that's life on, on planet Earth since, you know, we came out of the, the caves. Today, there is a fourth player, mm. something that is not like the river, only because he's interactive, but he can learn. It's not like the dog because it doesn't have intentions. It's not like I'm going to say, oh, no, uh, I don't feel like uh, eating this today. Uh, and then, oh, I bark because I want to go out uh, for a walk. Okay. Mm. So um, it doesn't have that intention either. And certainly doesn't have no, the conscious self-control, planning, uh, in two years, I want to go and explore the Amazonian uh, real exact. So there's a fourth kind of agency here, which we have encountered in the past, for which we don't have conceptual tools Uh, to it. What happens? That some people will think of this just as another form of agency. It's a tool. It's no more than, say, a drill, okay? It's no more than a car. The Derivative kind of agency. Uh, it does what it does and controls them. Bad idea. Uh, at least my old car, you no, know, the new one learns. Uh, but the old <laughs> yeah. one didn't didn't learn said, right. I said, oh no, it's a new form. It's, it's almost like a dog, you know. It's growing, it has the, the, the it's, it's like a five year old child, etc. The technology, the science we have should be good enough to tell us that at least admit that this is not the case today. I think it's bongous anyway, but no. Sure. We're talking about my iPhone, okay? Uh, or we're talking about ChatGPT. Uh, it's certainly not like us. So we need to admit that we have a new player, uh, mm-hmm. that the game has become a little bit more complicated. Uh, we build it, we control it, uh, or at least we have the responsibility of controlling it. We can turn it on and off. Um, it can do things uh, that are, are amazing. It can learn from its own performance. It's not like a river. It's not like a dog. It's not like a human being. What we need is a bit of work from Mm -hmm. philosophers understanding this new form of agency. That is the opening that I would find exciting. Uh, any uh, researcher listening to this, I mean, you have an amazing topic in in your hands. This is the 21st century. If you try to reduce this form of agency to, oh, but really some kind of intelligent, you know, just not either, you're just stuck with a, no, I don't want to admit that something entirely new has really happened. I have an old model. My hermeneutics is still modern, and all I have are these three categories. So it has to be one, two, or three. Since it's not a river, and it's not like a, it must be either like a dog or like a human being.
0: Yeah. Open up. Yeah.
1: Think in terms of welcome to a fourth kind, and it's perfectly reasonable. I mean, we engineer this uh, problem-solving, task, uh, uh, caring.
0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
2: This 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 um this the even the question of agency is so so tough to think about. And like it it uh, puts an exclamation point on your idea that we need to have better concepts for this 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 new thing. Cause I'm I'm thinking maybe there's some literature on group agency. And so is is ChatGPT like a group agent? Because I'm interacting with I don't know, 3.5, but there's also four What's the connection between those two? And also, if if I'm using it at the same time you are, is this does it make sense to even call it like an agent? You know what I mean? Like uh, we we don't want to say it's intelligent, but I think the AI folks say, well, intelligence is a functional concept, and it's just you know solving yeah. solving puzzles. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. How, how so, we think of uh,
1: so about intelligence, at some point, if it becomes just a matter of vocabulary, I'm happy with any vocabulary. I mean, okay, I mean, uh, you could call it the genius as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. I don't care. Sure. Um, the question is what that, um, the consequences of that, um, choice of vocabulary, because, um, for example, if then you start getting worried that it might take over the universe and do domi- well, that's silly. Okay. okay. Uh, but if I call say this pen intelligent, because you know, the more I use it, the less ink I can see here, that's very intelligent. Yeah. Okay, fine. So as of tomorrow, not this is the intelligent pen, right? Yeah. It yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah, and a lot of that is it's advertisement, is hype, is selling yeah. the product. So let's let's be a bit more philosophical about it. Yeah. We want to be careful about the words because words have consequences; they have implications. And intelligence, although we don't have a definition, and by the way, for anyone curious, just just look around and see how many disciplines have defined in how many ways so intelligence. Hard. Yeah, it, it's a joke. Yeah. So um, so the real question becomes. Oh, if you don't have a a, a definition for intelligence, uh, what are we talking about? Well, we do have some criteria. And you want to know whether these criteria are here being uh, deployed or not. For example, um, stop playing a game because something else is more important all of a sudden. Hmm. You're playing chess with uh, a computer, uh, computer's winning or you're winning, it doesn't matter. But at some point you actually stop because maybe the, the, the fire alarm goes on, like, mm. go, go, go. The computer will keep playing. It will win the game <laughs> yeah. and burn with the house. Yeah. Uh, so intelligence, for example, is also a matter of flexibility. There mm. is social intelligence, there is musical intelligence, there is that intuitive intelligence that lets you sort of postpone some news to a friend because today is not the right day. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so. Normally when people ask me, oh, well, so what is intelligence? Intelligence mm-hmm. is all the times, no, is the counterpart of all the forms of stupidity that we can have
0: today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: If it was stupid, no, to leave the passport at home when you're flying, it would have been intelligent, no, to take the passport before you flying. If it ah. is stupid to leave the, the finger in the door when you close the door of your car, oh, that was stupid, yes. So it would have been intelligent. Not to leave the finger. That, that. If it is stupid to think that two plus two is twenty-two, then it's intelligent to think that two plus is four. If yeah. it was stupid to say that thing to that friend today, really, Parker, don't you know, oh, yeah. I, Laura? I said, oh, uh, uh, John, I said, terrible day. You could have that was stupid. It would have been intelligent not to. You you read the newspaper. You can't summarize it. Really, Oh, that's stupid. Like, it's intelligence not to mm. read the newspaper then the variety of things uh, that we call intelligent is almost boundless. Because it's another way of saying being human, uh, uh, having a a successful mental life, and that is not something you can pinpoint like uh, a definition like uh, water equal H2O, because that is science and it's good science. But that's when we have irregimented vocabularies that can handle no concept that are clear, Emphasize. Mm. In this case, we have an archipelago of islands. Uh, you can call the archipelago Maldives, but no island is the Maldives, mm. uh, and that would be silly. Uh, it's the whole archipelago. Uh, yeah. And people say, "Oh, okay, well, no, I'm kind of getting it." Um, let me give you another an analogy. It's like people looking for the uh, the border between Italy and France. Is it in France or is it in Italy? It's a border. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, but it has to be somewhere. No, it's what makes one different from the other. Uh, it's that line that is neither here nor there, because if you pass it, you are in one place and you don't. So you need to be a little bit more, so, sort of, uh, in, shall we say intelligent, or flexible, uh, yeah. mentally. Yeah. And then, uh, the whole question, oh, is this machine intelligent or not? becomes either trivial or misformulated. Trivial, mm. because like, depends on what you mean by intelligence. If, for example, it, it runs calculations, well, my pocket calculator is intelligent. It can do maths like no one else. You know, so amazing, yeah. Uh, or uh, 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 it's misformulated because we don't have uh, that archipelago. Doesn't apply at all. Yeah. It's comparing uh, oranges and apples. Yeah, I find most of the discussion about uh, the philosophy of AI of that kind like either trivial or pointless.
2: Hmm. That's fascinating. I, I think that you're. Your three main ways of talking about information are, are super helpful. Uh, I, 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 haven't seen them used a lot in AI conversations, but maybe that's, it would tamp down a lot of the hype as well, because you're saying like, no, you, you're, you're mixing categories. You're, you're saying you're talking about information for reality in these algorithms as if it were information as reality or, you know, or something else you're, you're, you're mixing categories. I, exactly.
1: I wonder. Then, that That's very well put. No. That a mix mixing those categories generates yeah. confusion to know it and worries yeah. about something that, honestly, it's like zombies. Yeah. I'm not worried about zombies. I'm not worried about AI in yeah. the sense of zombies. I'm worried yeah. about humans using AI a lot. Right.
2: Yeah. And it's, and it's just straight up equivocation. It's, this is a helpful tool for showing that we're, we're equivocating on the term, uh, intelligence maybe, or, or AI. I, I wonder there's a, I want to get into some of the goofy stuff, the more out there <laughs> type stuff. Um. I think, you're, I think you can actually help me a lot with thinking about the extended mind uh, thesis of, of Chalmers and Clark. So you, you talked about Karl Popper's paper, um, Epistemology Without the Knowing Subject, and how you thought actually that's not knowledge, that's information. I wonder, um, are our thoughts in, in my mind right now, whatever the mind is, are they more analog or digital? Are they more like a record or more like a CD? And then I have some following uh, have questions after that.
1: So, uh, uh, of course, the brain is uh, an analog engine, uh, 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 not least because um, uh, everything works in terms of uh, uh, how much blood it gets or not at the end of the day. And uh, uh, there's a lot uh, that can be um, uh, represented uh, and was represented a lot in the past as uh, uh, digital in terms of neurons. They fire, they don't fire. Yes. However, uh, now we discover, for example, that uh, there are waves uh, of firing mm.
0: uh,
1: that determine also uh, our uh, neurological uh, life the, uh, processes. Um, so in a way, it's a little bit like asking whether music is digital or analog. Mm. These are two codes and uh, uh, you can encode music as analog and digital. Um, yeah. Uh, every time you do that, you may or may not uh, uh, lose something. It may be lossless, or uh, it may be lossy. You, know, uh, you may actually keep, keep translating, and at the end, it's almost unrecognizable. But, uh, you must have seen this, uh, this experiment run actually by... Uh, my wife is a neuroscientist. Uh, she's, uh, she's a professor of neuroscience here. She was a chair of neuroscience in Oxford, and we came together to Yale, and she's now the director of the neuroscience uh, center here at Yale present your Science and a friend of ours, a friend of hers, in particular, a friend of mine, by proxy, at mm-hmm. uh, the University of Berkeley. Um, they ran this experiment and they tried uh, to reconstruct what people were listening to
0: yeah.
1: by looking. You know, and then it turned out there was uh, the Pink Floyd. I don't know if you have uh, actually heard listened to. It, they had kind of te- they had to tell you that it's Pink Floyd because like it was. Like, Okay. It it's barely recognizable, but it's okay. impressive. Okay. And then people say, Oh my goodness, AI ruins the mind. Yes, like, right. But how how confused can you be? Well, first of all, this is a bit of a trick. Um, we've been able to do that for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just that we do this much, much better now. Uh the second thing is waves out. An analog uh, brain no, collects those waves, you register the waves of the brain, and it's this is basically translation from one code to, code to another code, to another code, to another code. Okay. Of course, it's very lossy. You lose a lot, enormously, because from what was the actual sound to what we get through uh, the vibration of our eardrums in the brain, and, the, and then what the brain is encoding in terms of these vibrations, then what comes out, you know there is, being Floyd because you know what it was, what came in. Right. Right. Uh, you see what I mean? Like, so, yeah. you know, it's not like you, you could interpret that if you didn't know that that was what came in. Sure. Anyway, so translation, and, and if you know how, how much neuroscience has done these days, um, that should not be surprising. But back to your question therefore, um, are we talking about an analog or digital world? Um, I think that uh, as a Kantian, I find it uh, a misplaced um, uh, question. What we need, what we have um, is um, signals that come to the world, which we can encode as digital or analog, but we can switch all the time. Mm. Now, if you think that this is too fancy, uh, remember that uh, light is light, photons. Depending on the frame, they look like points or a wave. Sure. And asking whether light is a wave. No, continuous or yeah. made of points, uh, one, 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 the, like bullets, uh, means not having understood the, no, what you're talking about Yeah, because it, it is one or the other or both, depending on the, uh, essentially, uh, interface that you put between you and the light.
2: Well, so the, so the connection to the external mind thesis is, is, um, look, I, I have a, a notebook and this, these are all my thoughts about your work and they <laughs> are a, a guide for me to uh you know it's like my my active memory or something like that and they they seem like they're they're representations of my thoughts but i'm wondering you know are 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 notes in a notebook do they count as analog or digital and i would think they would be digital even though it sounds weird because we say it's an analog notebook but it's mm, not
1: i it really is a question of interpretation it, it okay um, it Unless you ask what that question is for,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, there is no way of answering it yes or no independently.
2: Well, so so Chalmers and uh, Clark would say, um, perhaps, you know, maybe our mind is extended out into the notebook because our, our thoughts are there. And they use, you know, an example of uh, an Alzheimer's patient who uses their notebook to yeah. guide themselves throughout the world. And they say, well, you know, in a very real sense, this is... Uh, And I don't know how, with the sense they talk about, they don't say whether it's metaphorical or analogical or or univocal, but they want you to think that this is like, the the conclusion is that like, this is, your mind isn't just in your skull, it extends into your, wherever your thoughts go.
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think it's, it's uh, the way I read it is a a, uh, a nice metaphor, Um, anything more than that. And I would be very critical. Um, First of all, because um, uh, I, Never seen, I never touch, I never sort of kick a mind. I mean, mind. If you start thinking your mind almost like a liquid in your brain that no, I can pours out and makes everything wet around you, sure, that's a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, we have a mental life, um, uh, and for people who think that this is a bit strange, imagine uh, someone say, "Look, the world uh, is made of objects and actions and properties." of objects, so there are cars, cars can be red or, and can go, can one. That's great. What is mental there? The mental with the analogy is how. Mm. So imagine, uh, basically the mental is an adverb. We don't, we don't have a mind. We live mindfully. Mm. If you have an, uh, pass me this, this, this oversimplification, but if you have an a adverbial idea of mind, and as in my case, you think that a second-order ontology of that kind uh, is really what matters, that things are not, they're not things and then property of things and then interactions between things, but actually they are relations that constitute things. Mm -hmm. Then there is mindfulness that gets, or or living mindfully, uh, they get incarnated, if you like, in you, in me, or the new baby, or someone else. Um, then the picture is really almost upside down. Yeah, uh, uh, and I find that you know, philosophically more convincing because mm-hmm. it doesn't uh, create a ontology of something like a mind out of thin air. Yeah, uh, it's very dangerous. Uh, it's like, it's like imagine with a different analogy. Don't you say uh, I, I, which I hope is a bit more intuitive. Um, I think it's the same story. Huh? I'm sorry, like democracy. Mm-hmm. I live in a democracy. Well, actually you live in a house. This mm-hmm. democracy they, oh, 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 you live in a place where actions and interactions are democratic. Oh, you live democratically. Now I understand. Mm-hmm. Or someone runs, runs quickly. Okay. Where is the quickly? Uh, what, no, please not point to. If you start looking at a thing-based ontology, when in fact you're talking about uh, ways and relational ways of not existing, the confusion leads to some kind of really funny things like, oh, my mind is out there, Mm -hmm. What, I understand the metaphor, um, but it would be much more interesting to say that in a in a life lived mindfully, of course I am the node at the center of this network. Mm-hmm. But the mindfulness, you no, know, it's not just this node, it's uh, is all the relations that I have yeah. uh, with the network. Yeah. So uh, final analogy. So in case anyone thinks like this guy makes no sense whatsoever, um it's like thinking in terms of um roundabouts and um or crossroads if you prefer. Roundabouts is a very English way. Right. Uh crossroads and Roads, and ask people what comes first, the crossroad or the road? They're say, oh, there are the roads. Uh, crossroads is where the roads uh, happen to be. What well, is my mind? My mind is a crossroad.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is a roundabout. Is <clears throat> where everything there interacts in a certain way. Uh, my past memories, my way of speaking language, English, my, uh, my life, my experiences, my feelings, my current state of the body all these relations, all these ways of being come together. Mm-hmm. And it's very concrete. I mean, don't cross the roundabout without stopping, checking and going. It's yeah. totally concrete, but thinking in terms of first roundabouts, first the mind, and then a mindful, uh, sort of existence is to put the crossroads for us and then build the roads to connect them. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, it, if, it makes no sense. If we have a relational ontology, and I, I know that this is maybe going down a rabbit trail, but uh, so we, we don't have to, if you if you don't want to, but it, uh, I have the substance uh, ontologist folks in my head. That are, they're, they're saying, you know, a relation is a relation between things. So if yes. you have a relation without things, it's like, what are we even talking about? And it's like the chicken and the egg. Agreed. So uh, here we need two steps. Well, first of all, there is a way which not a two step,
1: there's a way of doing um, what's called structural realism uh, in yep. philosophy of science. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do that in an informational way that tries to solve you not know, both, both the chicken and the egg uh, yeah. but that is a bit specialized, and for the folks you not know, uh, listening to this you not know, just looking informational structural realism and as mm-hmm. that's the way you can take. we, we, yeah, we uh, did a
2: whole episode on that for folks interested. There you go um, yeah we yeah, found yeah yeah pretty, pretty precise. But uh, let's
1: keep it uh, uh, simple and straightforward uh, on an everyday, not, not philosophy of science, but everyday experience. So you can really have two kinds here, at least two kinds of, of way of speaking about reality. One is I have access. Like I look, I check, maybe with tools, maybe with science, maybe with theory, but I have the means to tell you what the world is like. Mm-hmm. Okay, Maybe improvable, maybe, but there is, that possibility is open. The other one that says, look, forget about what is out there. What is out there is, you can see where I'm going, the, is sending signals to us. Yeah. What we get are the signals. The signals is what build our own ontology. Uh-huh. My ontology, which is, you no know, this, talking to you, this pen in my head, is the result, the outcome of this particular receiver processing those particular signals so that this is the reality in which, you no know, I I'm living and it's completely real. I mean, the signals are real, the, everything is concrete. I mean, I'm not going like, oh, there's no real real." reality, forget about it. We'll leave that to childish games and games played by (laughs) philosophers. I'm talking about the real life, the the life when you go to the the grocery and come back. What kind of reality are we talking about? The metaphysical one, reality in itself, for the Kantian's, the phenomenon, or The outcome of my interactions with the world through this particular interface, epistemically speaking, that is my body, blah, 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 my culture and so on, my language, and the outcome of that. Call that ontology. Once you have that distinction, I'm getting to the chicken and egg. Uh, No, this is is really helpful. The the chicken and egg problem is for the metaphysician. Uh The metaphysician who wants to tell you what the world is in itself independently of my a human or th- a particular interface or anything, uh, as if he had you not know, a God's eye perspective on the world classic, yeah. you know, it has to tell you what the foundational bits are and what comes first and what comes later. So roundabouts, so and no, no, things and their relations between things, nodes and, relate, and they don't know, I mean, they, they just, they've been running in circles because yeah. of course chicken and egg, blah, well, blah. No, well, and, one.
2: and because, because um, if, if we do take a Kantian picture, it's like, well, you're trying to escape your own mind, right? You're, if you're, yeah. if you're going for transcendental exactly. ideas. So you're
1: then. also quoting your own language, yeah. your own categories, yeah. view but I no, think in terms of trying to do metaphysics, try to do ontology, mm. meaning, okay, how do we come up, what's the best model that we can get of this epistemic ontology that we have on our side mm. and here, the beauty of modeling something is that you can decide, you you can say, let's decide that we start modeling because it makes more sense. It's more fruitful. It's more explanatory Mm. Let's decide that we start with lines, not with points. Yeah. And then you start on the whiteboard saying, okay, line, there's a relation and relation links A and B. I've just done it. Oh, you just got out of the chicken. Well, it's just saying, how do I want to model the relationship between egg and chicken? I'm going to start chronologically, it yeah. made more sense, start with, it, uh, with the egg and then the chicken.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, but then in real life, I'm not doing metaphysics. That's your, <laughs> that's that's your problem, <laughs> not mine.
2: Yeah. So that's good.
1: the steps are epistemic ontology, not a metaphysical approach. Yeah. And on the epistemic ontology, realize that we have to model that epistemic ontology philosophically in order to understand it. And because in modeling, you're actually designing what you
2: need yeah, You can start wherever the heck yeah. you want.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, I wonder, if, can, can, you, can you, so some people want to take the epistemic opo- uh, uh, ontology and then run it, run it back into metaphysics and say, um, well, information is a neutral monism then, right? Because look at, look at all the work we can do epistemically with information and, and these signals that we receive. So it looks like, let's just say that the numeral realm just is information, right? Uh, is, is that what's yeah. going on in it? What do you make of that, that so project? You, so you can, uh, there is there is um, freedom, so to speak. So
1: you can, uh, um, uh, or oh, to use fine terminology, your ontological commitment can go much, much further and say, look, I have an epistemic ontology, it works very well. In fact, my epistemic ontology works so well that I can put robots on Mars. So that's a good, solid no, no, way of understanding the signal that the, that the ultimate nominal source is sending to me. Interpreting them in the best way, such so an extent they're successful, no, uh, and, and therefore there's instrumental successfulness in mm-hmm. my no, humanity, so in the way uh, the human uh, sort of, uh, epistemic ontology works, totally fine. Do I have to say next step, and that's the way the world is? Well, if you like, but that is an act of faith. Yeah. Uh, as yeah. in, there's yeah. nothing that forces you to say that. Okay, I mean, yeah. if you, no, you're welcome. <laughs> Um, but in a way, you know, as any good scientist, scholar, philosopher, what we should do is to stay within what is guaranteed by our understanding. Yeah. If we want to say, of and above what we have reasons to believe that, oh, there's so much more. So essentially is, is a friction-free commitment, like yes or not. I mean, it's, it's, is it anyone, uh, uh, game? um, yeah. And we don't have to, uh, we, we are free from, uh, so normally a commitment is required. That's why, uh, uh in this case, it would be just, uh, a hundred percent volunteering an ontological commitment to something that is not required.
2: Yeah. That Can sense. I do it? Yes. <laughs> Anytime. Right.
1: Do I have to do it? Is imagine the following thing, like, is uh, the radio s- sends signals, sends music. I want here, I receive the music, I interpret the, the signals as music. I also want to believe that the signals represent the intrinsic nature of the radio. You are free to do that. Do they? I, it's unlikely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. The radio sends signals. Um, now, someone will say, no, 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 look, the radio is, seen, is sending a specific kind of signals. signals about its own nature. Well, that's an interesting thought. So maybe. How do we know? Yeah, no. right. And and that is where my Kantian sort of uh, breaks, start going like right, do
0: do do metaphysics, do 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 yeah. do, 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 do
1: like like no, yeah. this it and and there's nothing wrong with metaphysics. It's like um, uh, storytelling. It's anyone's game. Um, mm. Enjoy, go, like yeah. have fun. Like, but then I read Tolkien, and it's much better.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, so so final final question for you. You've been so generous with your with your time here. This is this is for the audience. My my audience loves. Simulation hypothesis, and I can see a, a connection here where someone might say, "Well, look, if we're okay, so we go in for for transcendental idealism of a certain stripe, and we're receiving these signals, and uh, we 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 can't say what the thing in itself is. Does that mean that we're living, you know, in a simulation, even if we're, even even if not a uh, a computer simulation? You know, is it is the world that we see the Lebenswelt or the uh, the world for me, whatever terminology we use, ontology, the world of ontology?" Is that a, a simulated world? Just simulated by our own minds, maybe? or that That's what
1: gives a bad name to philosophy, unfortunately, this kind of uh, discussions. Um, <laughs> um, and that's what gets philosophy departments closed down, huh? because people think, oh, that's what you're doing? Okay, we don't need you. Uh, interesting. interesting. Uh, but no, let me take it seriously for a moment. Okay. Um,
0: it's, like, uh, it's like saying... Um, We live in a world full of um goats. Hmm. you can't you can't touch them, you can't see them. In fact, you can't even prove that they're there, but they're there. Yes
1: or no, right.
0: hmm. What kind of question is that? Hmm.
1: The premise undermines any possibility of providing a rational answer to the price do we or do we not live in a simulation generated by the future? The premise undermines any possibility of a reasonable answer to the question. So it's just a a trick. It's one more trick that philosophers enjoy, but they should not play, or at least not publicly, because when society sees us wasting time after these silly things, Hmm. then the judgment, no, we call for it, okay? Hmm. If that is what philosophy is, then people will ask, not with my taxpayer money. Uh, no, enjoy Saturday and Sunday, yeah. but we need something else. So let me let me put it in a different way. Um, there are a lot of questions that we ask, that um, I call them absolute questions, that provide by being posed no constraint whatsoever in terms of what could be the space of a reasonable answer. Hmm. If you have removed by asking that question, any chance of providing an answer that makes any sense? Well, why are you asking the first question in the first place? So, what, what is so sometimes, and that's where we took the wrong step, uh, and with all this thought experiments, simulation, and uh, the no, I'm clearly, there's a confusion at the source. Mm-hmm. And it's the malicious demon confusion from Descartes onwards, at least, but also. You know, Plato, when he says the, the ring that makes you invisible. Yeah, exactly. So, so all, all these things, I mean, we're talking about Plato and Descartes. So, were they just ridiculous people? Even Plato, even. The, no. What they were doing were thought experiments as means to an end. Right. They were not ends themselves. Sure. They were not asking, uh, is it possible no, to uh, uh, be com- constantly you know, deceived by a Do I live or do I not live in a world in which a demon is creating all this? No, matrix, simulation, it's always the same story. A virtualizer. Dickard wasn't asking that stupid question because Mm -hmm. he was a genius. He was asking, how can I possibly test at the bay end of, no, the road in the most dramatic sense, like road test this car, what Mm -hmm. are the most extreme weather conditions for this car called human knowledge under which it will crack and the most extreme are, imagine a demon. Can he even pass that test? He can. At least, no, Cate, you know, Cogito, et cetera. Sure. Well, then I can drive that car even when a demon is around. I hope people are getting the analogy. Here. Yeah, it's a great analogy. But yeah. that was, you know, but it's like, I think it was an engineer. Uh, we shouldn't forget. Yeah. So when, when he says, look, let, let me test this artifact, this human knowledge, putting so much pressure until he cracks. Does he crack even when I go... Total blast, no, malicious demo. no, something remains, hmm. They call you bingo. I can rebuild everything from there. Boom. Now it's a class. We still read it because of that, but not because he was wondering, do I, or do I not live in a world where malicious demon <laughs> makes me think that yeah. I'm in front of the fire, like seriously, that is totally useless because hmm. if that is not the, not the tool you're using to test the theory, but it's actually the end of the game. Yeah then you're playing the wrong game yeah that game is a waste of time Mm -hmm. and that's what we started with that is not a a philosophical question Mm -hmm. that is a philosopher's question and no one cares at all about philosophers questions Mm -hmm. everybody cares about philosophical questions Mm -hmm. and the distinction i hope no if there's one message for this keep this in mind Am I asking a philosophical question, or am I asking philosopher's questions? Mm. Extended still- mind, virtual reality, simulation, <laughs> AI taking over the world. That will leave no trace and will be in the chapter of how philosophy can be so embarrassing. Don't mm. no, think. Okay. There yeah. is no book like that that I want to see back in uh, Bethlehem. <laughs> am cool. I being no, uh, abrasive enough?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Doc, Dr. Blurry, this this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for for all your time and and letting me, you know, go through all these even philosophical questions. This has been great. Um folks, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pences and as always, all glory to God.